podcast is part of the 80s Ruled Network. Visit the 80s Ruled on Facebook for more 1980s awesomeness. Did many of the bands that defined the 1980s hail from one place in Northeast Ohio? Put on your energy dome and let's find out. Once again, it's time for the 80s. An objective defense of the 80s from a couple of idiots. Hey, welcome back to another episode of The Idiots. An objective, this is how we do this, right? I just don't remember. Yeah, this is how we do it. An objective defense of 1980s pop culture from Will and Ray. There you go. I'm not going to make it complicated. Huh. It's much easier. You don't have to be, any, you know. Um, and my name is happens to be Will. And joining me as always is my friend. He's my co-host. His name is Ray. Hey, that's weird because that's what you just said. That's the name of the movie. <laughs> Today on the show, we're going to be talking about local bands that make it big with our special guest, Chris Butler, who is a prime example of that. He was a member of many bands in uh, Northeast Ohio here, but he, he, struck, he struck it big with his one in particular band named The Waitresses, which you may know from I Know What Boys Like and mm -hmm. uh, Christmas Rap which is at least my, it's in the top three favorite Christmas songs of all time. It might be the number one. Now, I've got a couple of uh, really old Christmas songs. Let's see, what was it? What's my favorite Christmas song? Was that guy? Um, ah, whatever. It's an old Christmas song. That's the one I like. You know it. Everyone knows it. <laughs> Andy Williams. Yeah. So, okay. So my favorite Christmas songs are two that Andy Williams sings and then Christmas rapping. Mm. Before we get started though, don't forget to subscribe to the show because you know, you might not like this episode and so you've already stopped listening, but next week we'll be back with something else and you might like that one. But how would you find out about it? You wouldn't unless you subscribed. Yeah. So save yourself the effort and be notified. Right. And go over to T Public and buy some merch. <laughs> Before it comes to your house. I I'm tired of pussyfooting around it. Don't answer that bell when it rings. <laughs> uh, let's get caught up on 80s news. Uh, hey, today on 80s news, so, you know, I'm doing a little bit of catch up because it's in particular because we, there's been so much 80s news, but also we took the week off uh, last week. We didn't get a chance to talk about this little teaser that we got for the new Ghostbusters Afterlife. And I knew you shared it on Facebook. And my first thought was, I think this might be a commercial for Walmart or something. Because <laughs> you see Paul Rudd's character sort of milling about in some superstore of some kind, only to ultimately come across this package of marshmallows, which inside are, you know, uh, what, uh, miniature versions of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. And they break out of the package and then cut to a little, I don't know, montage of them doing horrible things to one another, really setting each other on fire in various ways. Yep. A s'more is being made at one point. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about this. What, what did you think? I liked it, but it counteracts what he said this was going to be. Hmm. Like he said, this was going to be scary. Right. And this was not scary. But once again, you know, hmm. it's got Paul Rudd. So I'm all in on the Paul Rudd thing. You know, I love Paul Rudd. Yep. So it wasn't scary, but it was funny. Yeah. So I like it. As you, once again, I also love horror comedy. So for me, this was fine. I'm okay with it. I thought it was awesome. But I'm hoping that the overall theme of the movie yep. isn't so silly. Yeah, me too. I was surprised. I don't know if you saw, there was a clip of Ivan Reitman shows the clip to Bill Murray for the first time. This just came out a week or so you mean ago. Jason Reitman? No, I, it's actually Ivan. Oh, Ivan showed Yeah, him? he's like on a Zoom call and he huh. calls up Bill and Bill's there. He's like, hey, Bill, hey, I want to show you something. I'm not going to tell you anything about it. Just going to show it to you. And they show him the clip and you see Bill Murray's reaction and he's laughing and he thinks it's funny. And he says, Hey, you know, 
He said, it's like the first one, right, Ivan? This is, now it feels like the first one. You know, and they agreed. But I, I agree with you. It's, I don't know, I don't, the first one was silly at times, but we were promised a darker film. I don't know. And it raises a lot of questions. Yeah. Why are these things, why the Steve Puff Marshmallow Man in this bag, in this store, before this character? I mean, you know, Zool wasn't around. He didn't think of a, a god that would come and destroy. I don't know, so many questions. And I hope the explanation isn't dumb. Fan service. I don't even care if it's dumb. Like I said, I liked it. But if you're going to promise me a dark Ghostbusters and tell me how scary it is, and then you give me this, I'm still I'm still on board. All right. Well, hey, we will have to wait now until November of this year, at least. <laughs> they're to finally they are killing me with they are killing me with these pushbacks. Yeah, po- as this one's been postponed a number of times. You know, among those other films that were supposed to come out in 2020, but... It feels like we've been waiting for this one since 1989. <laughs> All right. Hey, in other 80s news, so I know we talked about uh, Justice League. You didn't see it. Yep. Are you otherwise fairly behind on your DC superhero movies? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Well, will this get you excited and maybe catch up? Because Michael Keaton's agent has confirmed he is, in fact, returning to the cowl and will play Batman in the upcoming Flash film. <sighs> this one's tough because you know my feelings about who should be Batman. Yep. Yes, I do. It's ridiculous and impossible, but yes. Bruce Campbell should be Batman. Yes, so I'm not exactly excited about this. Now how could you want Bruce Campbell though over Michael Keaton? That's crazy. I, ju- I just think he'd do an amazing job. But you've seen what Michael Keaton can do. I saw what Michael Keaton could do. 40 years ago. Nearly 30 years ago, right? I just think at this point, I I want Bruce Campbell. And you know me, I've been pushing this and pushing this. He will push it till someone listens. He'll push it real good. God damn it. I will push it until Kevin Smith, please listen to my please. (laughs) DC has yet to let him make a film. He almost made a Superman movie once and they were like, yeah, no, pass. I don't understand why they're so against him. And Bruce Campbell. I just don't get it. Uh, of course, Michael Keaton last played Batman in 1992's Batman Returns. We had a number of different Batmans since then, but it's been quite some time since we've seen him in the Batcave. Look, I'm excited about it. Can I say he's my favorite Batman? Yeah, probably. And maybe because he was, you know, he's not Adam West. So we got to just, Adam West is in a special yeah. category. Yeah. If you you got to take Adam so, West yeah. out of it. After that. Yeah, of 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 the actual movie movies, yes, he is by far my favorite. The, the, of course, this film itself got delayed like every other film, like we were just talking about Ghostbusters because of COVID. But finally, the superhero film officially kicked off production in London on Monday. Keaton, you know, had uh, hinted with, in an interview with Deadline that he might not do The Flash because of his concerns about COVID-19, saying, quote, to be honest with you, you know, it worries me more than anything about all this stuff. It's COVID, uh, end quote. But, hey- He's doing it now. So maybe he got a couple of shots and now he's feeling uh, like he's Batman. Yeah, a couple of shots of tequila. Yeah. He's ready to be Batman. All right. Hey, in other 80s news. So again, look, we're catching up on things, right? So forgive us for not having realized that Akron Mayor Dan Horrigan had proclaimed April 1st as Devo Day. And it was intended uh, to kick off a month-long campaign to garner fan votes for the bands to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, so Devo, I think, deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Absolutely. Of course, Devo formed in Akron, Ohio, in 1973. It was uh, formed by a couple sets of brothers, uh, Mark and Bob Mothersbaugh, and Bob and Jerry Casale, and along with Alan Myers. But 
look, if you if you know any hit of Devo's, it is Whip It from 1980. Uh, hell yeah, man. How many people put a, a flower pot on their head <laughs> and sang that song? <laughs> you know, around the city of Akron, folks started realizing, hey, what, what's going on here? Because they repurposed a the number of recycled uh, tires, you know, from Goodyear, because Akron's also the home of Goodyear Tire, for folks who don't know. Mm-hmm. They had... I don't know if they spray painted them or maybe Goodyear made them, but red tires and they had them stacked in that energy dome configuration all popping up all around Akron. They had a number of different things and they probably still do because it's still April. number of things around the city celebrating Devo and encouraging people to rock Devote. Get it? <laughs> I see what they did yeah. there. You know, I know who we should get on. That's clever. It occurs to me. Why are we, why are we, we're just talking about an article like this in the abstract. I know who we can get on the phone here to talk about this. Hey, this is Mayor Dan Horgan. Thanks for calling. Hey, Mr. Mayor, it's Will and Ray. Good afternoon. So we were just discussing on 80s News how Devo Day was April 1st, although a number of folks I realized thought it might have been an April Fool's joke. <laughs> but uh, how are folks responding to this sort of month-long celebration of, uh, of Devo? It, is, it has been fantastic. I mean, especially, um, you know, when you, when you say Devo, you don't mean anything else. You mean this band who was, you know, so iconic, like you said, you know, starting early on and who has lasted and has done so many other things in the music industry and the influence on the styles and in movies, movies and TV shows. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's been a great reception. You know, the whole goal is to get them into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and take their rightful place right next to everybody else for what all of they did. And this is not to take away from any other group, but they were extremely unique. And I, I think they have long earned to be in there. And we look forward to, you know, uh, pushing them over the top. Yeah. Yes. And so it strikes me as, you know, just amazing how many great musical acts have come out of the city of Akron. Is there something in, I don't want to say in the, in the water, but there's, what is it about Akron that has just birthed so many fantastic musicians, do you think? I think, you know, to tell you the truth, I, I think we have this entrepreneurial spirit and whether it comes to, you know, opening businesses or trying things culturally like music, um, there's that, you know, we were founded on, you know, a bunch of people came here and and, and wanted to start businesses and, the rubber industry was formed. That all spurs an attitude. There's a, I think, you know, we fix things and we build things and we try things. And I think people, I think that, you know, got ingrained to the DNA, you know, as to how we tried to do things differently. And, you know, as Devo was formed and, and not knowing all their complete history, but being, you know, having seen them before and, and some of these acts, it's, you know, they were cutting edge because they wanted to go try something and, and not be afraid to fail. And I think that's a, the embodiment of the region and an Akron altogether is that, you know, the failure is fine. You just got to keep trying. And and obviously they did yeah. and they found success that way and they found a niche. And I think it's been, uh, uh, you know, it's been great for the city and for the region. Yeah. For, for folks who don't know, I mean, Chrissy Hind, we're talking about the waitresses, uh, the black keys, a <sighs> number of groups. It's really something. Well, these, and these are groups that, you know, when they walk in anywhere in the world, people yeah. are going to see them. So it's just not like, Hey, you know, you get local bands that sometimes for for one or reason and and don't make it out. But then these, some of these groups go and, you know, they sell out places, you know, all over the world. And, you know, you throw LeBron in there. I mean, all of that, I think, embodies that spirit of, uh, of, uh, of punch it above our weight, which I think is fantastic. So as a lifelong resident of Akron, do you recall at some point hearing these bands like or hearing at Devo, for example, on the radio and thinking, wait a second, this is a hometown band that's that's making it. Uh, yeah, definitely. It was I, I, sometime in the late 70s. I was in high school transitioning to college and, and 
you know, my music tastes were expanding beyond. I remember the first album I bought. Yep. I mean, I talk about in albums um, mm-hmm. and still have some of them to listen to them. But I remember hearing them. I, there was a friend of mine who was kind of uh, and they called it alternative music, I guess, back then. And, right. and a lot of people were like, you know, what what is that stuff? And I, I found it interesting and always had a deep appreciation for people who go out and take that risk, you know, musically to try to do something different. And they were I mean, their whole presentation was just different. But you can see some of their influences, too, I think, on some of that, whether it's whether it's the undertones or whether it's someone like the Ramones, all of those things, I think, have an influence uh, into what they try to do. And then they came up with this unique style, which has been great. Yeah. And that combination of their sound and their style, there's very few bands that are so iconically, if I can say that's a word, 1980s. I mean, you just look at them and you think 80s, you hear that sound, you know, that mixture of synth and uh, rock and punk and just infusion of so many things. That's 1980s. As as anybody will tell you, it's really difficult to create a brand, you know what I mean? And then have it sustain it for so many years. I mean, this was almost instant that because it was so different and they did sound so different, but they still made sense and people still liked it it and they created that. And like I said, that sustainability is that's Akron. I mean, it's just, I think what we, what we do um, that's underappreciated, but it's, um, it's what we are. Right. And we're going to direct folks to visit vote.rockhall.com where you can select five nominees every day, every day until May 7th. And unfortunately you can't select Devo five times, but (laughs) there's actually a number of different acts that made it big in the 1980s on the list today. So you really can't go wrong with the other four choices. But start with Devo. Absolutely. Yeah, that starts at the top. It begins with D and you start with Devo <laughs> and go from there. So Very we're good. happy about that. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Thank you for having me. We appreciate it. See, look, sometimes, you know, we, we need you need news. We just go straight to the source. Mm-hmm. As I check now, now, Devo is number eight uh, on the fan vote uh, for the Rock Hall uh, induction. And I read that they usually induct the top five or six folks out of the list of nominees. So we just, need, we just have a little bit of work to do. So every day, go and vote for Devo, okay, among your five picks, every day through May 7th. So you've still got uh, a few days left to go. Okay, that was 80s news. Dun, 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 dun. So we did ask folks in our Facebook group, The Rumpus Room, and if you're not a member of The Rumpus Room and you do live to the, listen to the show, go to the go to Facebook. you find us there, The Idiots, 80ITS. Look for the Facebook group there, The Rumpus Room. Click on a button, and we'll let you in. We asked folks whether they saw a band before it made it big, and we got a few responses, including Joe Indigent. Joe writes, he saw Nine Inch Nails, Dink, not familiar with Dink. Dink uh, is more of a 90s band, but that's yeah, all right. Yeah. Uh, Kid Rock, he writes, not on purpose. <laughs> Kid Rock was playing in Cleveland when he was a rapper guy. Yeah, before Kid Rock was the Kid Rock we know, he was a rapper in the 80s and would you know open for anybody that he could. And he became friends with, huh, who was it? D-Nice? I don't remember. Anyway, he became rap- friends with some <laughs> rapper that uh, sort of helped him get his uh, career kicked off. Uh, Kat writes, this may not exactly fit in, but at my very first concert, seeing Culture Club in 1984 at the uh, Brendan Arena in East Rutherford, New Jersey, the original scheduled opening act was replaced by New Jersey-based La Bamba and the Hubcaps. She <laughs> uh, said, so we never heard of them, but they had some significant ke- connections including Spring, Springsteen, for one, and went on to do some interesting things. Huh. Tom Welch writes that uh, he moved to Arkansas when he was a teen, and the only artist bands that made it out of that area were country or Delta Blue singers. 80s country singer KT Oslin, I don't know that group or person, 
hails from our state, the late 1980s, early uh, 2000s band Evanescence did as well. Hmm. So you seen any bands that were small here and then broke big? Well, here's my story. Okay. And this is, this is going to be a little maybe long-winded, maybe not, okay. but I'm going to tell it anyways, okay? It's never stopped you. In 1986, here in the beautiful state of Ohio, um, there was a band called Purgatory. Mm, I think I've heard of them. And they released Tied to the Tracks. Mm. And me and my buddy that I went to high school with, we absolutely thought this was an excellent album. And this girl that we were both into yeah. was like, yeah, the lead singer's name was Jeff Hatrix. She's like, yeah, they're, his new band, Hatrix, is playing. You guys want to go see it? And we're like, yes, we want to go with the hot girl to see this band play. <laughs> So, That's all required. Okay. so we head down to this club called the Empire here in Cleveland and we're still in high school. So we go see them play and I mean, they just destroyed it. They were awesome. And so Jeff comes down after the show and he's talking to us. Like oh. this is one of my earliest experiences with talking to someone who'd just been on stage. Right. And he comes down cause she's like, Oh, you're so awesome. And he goes, yeah, I got laryngitis, but I did what I do. <laughs> And I was like, holy sh! I want to be this man. So that's when I realized playing drums was a waste of time. <laughs> I saw him and I'm like, this is what I want to do. I can do this. And so this is the moment I realized I was going to be a singer. So, oh. so fast forward, I finally get my band going. So we're doing musician. We're ready to do a musician's night. And there's this bar called Flashes. My band, we go down there because on musician's nights, anybody could play. So Hatrix is the host band. So Jeff's sitting there. All their equipment, you know, what it is, is the host band, you use their equipment. They play for an hour and then the other bands get to come up and play a couple songs and whatever. Gotcha. So we come up and we're playing and I can see Jeff. He's sitting off to the left-hand side of the stage and he's just got this disgusted look on his face the whole time we're playing. Like, <laughs> I cannot believe these are using my equipment. <laughs> he didn't no. know how it works? No, no. He, uh, he just, he didn't like oh, us. Yeah. So I didn't even talk to him that. I was like, God damn it. What a, well, that sucks. The guy who inspired you. Yeah. Mm. So fast forward a couple of years later, I joined a different band. Yeah. So now I'm on like the same level as his band locally anyways, because he's not who he's going to become yet. So now like um, I'm hanging out and I'm talking to him at the clubs and stuff. And we're like, you know, almost like peers. Yeah. And yeah. now I'm, I'm super happy about this because now the guy that I looked up to, I get to talk to yeah. and hang out with at the clubs and stuff. So, and he was really nice to me at this point. And I don't know if he remembered me from that band, but from the band I was with, he was really nice to me. So somewhere around 1993, Jeff has a new band yeah. and we're playing this thing with them. And I don't know if th this is one of their earliest shows. So I go over and I'm checking them out and his new band is Mushroom Head. Oh. He's Jeffrey Nothing now. Mm. And they get done playing, and he goes, what'd you think? And I go, I don't understand why you're wasting your time with this. Your other band is so <laughs> talented. Why are you wasting your time with this garbage? And obviously, Mushroom Head goes on to be yeah. <laughs> huge. And I literally told him, like, why are you wasting your time with this? And he goes, it's, it's really fun. And at that time, his character was still like, this was like one of the earliest, earliest shows. He's wearing a wedding dress and a <laughs> devil's mask and they don't even have songs yet. It's just noise. Hmm. But he said, it's so much fun. It's so different. Sounds low pressure. Yeah. So yeah, that's my 1980s hmm. band story. Uh, 
Jeffrey Nothing is Jeff Hatrix for all you people who don't know. And he's a super nice guy once you get to know him. So this is like those stories where the record labels fail to sign somebody who goes on to be huge. Like you would have been a terrible A&R guy. Oh, I would have. I was constantly telling people that you should do this instead. <laughs> it's like, do the opposite. Yeah. And they always did and they always were successful. Oh, and another another funny story um, that goes with that is um, the same night that we played with the uh, the musicians night with Hatrix, um, there's this death metal band who's also a national band now called Embalmer. And they were there and they used to, they would eventually come to all of our musicians nights. They just started hanging out there. And eventually they're like, hey, you guys want to play with us? And mind you, my band was just this weird little punk band. So Embalmer put us on a death metal show with them and that was our first show. Yeah. <laughs> and um, they're, they were our biggest supporters the ent- the entire time we played. That's awesome. So that was awesome too. So for everybody who knows who Purgatory, Mushroom Head, or Embalmer is, that, that's who I'm shouting out to today. So That's very cool. Yeah. Oh, God. I thought you were going to tell me, you know, you're playing, you, you know, you're doing your uh, punk thing in a, in a metal death metal show and folks are just like furious. Well, we would always go out and last. So oh, it was I like see. one o'clock in the morning. Oh, so okay. I thought you may open. But um, yeah, no, every time we played, the guys from Embalmer were right there in front of the stage, even if they were the only ones there. So it was totally awesome. Oh, super cool. So, you know, generally speaking, local bands, hey, every band came from somewhere. So every band's local to somebody before it makes it big. But it just so happens to be, and we could talk to Chris about this. There's a whole lot of bands that came out of Northeast Ohio. You just named a couple, but tons, you know, uh, Pear Ubu, Devo, like we mentioned, Dead Boys. Yeah, Pretenders. uh, Who else? We got Rocket from the Tomb. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, right. Which is where Pear Ubu and uh, Dead Boys came out of there. Yeah. Uh, And of course, The Waitresses. Very recently, the Black Keys. Yeah, they played a show at uh, this little bar in Collinwood. They played the Tavern. Holds like mm. 100 people. Yep. They blew that place apart. Yep. Just amazing. It is amazing what they're able to do with so little. I'm curious what Chris thinks and, you know, what is the secret formula that is, this area in particular seems to have birthed so many great bands. And they're all, for the most part, different than the, each other, you know? I mean, some of them that came up around the same time have a little bit of similarity, some overlap, but... Still very distinct. You'd never confuse the Devo for the waitresses, you know? Mm-hmm. I think it's time we go talk to Chris. All right, so in a moment, we'll be right back with our guest, Chris Butler. While our guest today would ultimately find success in music a decade later, he first studied sociology at Kent State University. It was also there in Kent, Ohio, the locus of the music scene that would later birth Devo and Chrissy Hind, among others, that our guest played bass with renowned experimental rock and jazz group The Numbers Band. Later, as the founder of Tin Huey, our guest secured a record deal with Warner Brothers, which released Contents Dislodged During Shipment, an album that was the progenitor of the genre-defining 1980s sound our guest would later create. And, as if crafting sophisticated yet wildly entertaining music wasn't challenging enough, our guest holds the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest recorded pop song in history, a 69-minute track, The Devil Glitch. And in 1995, our guest released a 45, The Wilderness Years, Volume 1, that was recorded without electricity or microphones on 100-year-old wax cylinders using a late 19th century hand crank 
ranked Edison Spring Motor Phonograph. Our guest, however, is best known as the founder, guitarist, and composer for The Waitresses, a band that's sound scored our youths in the early 1980s. Their notable songs, which were sung by the incomparable Patty Donahue, include I Know What Boys Like, No Guilt, and the theme song for the Gone Too Soon TV show, Square Pegs. And, of course, the holidays can't begin until you've heard Christmas rapping played overhead as you shop for Yuletide gifts. A songwriter, producer, musician, and world record holder, please welcome to the show, Chris Butler. I will. Hi, Ray. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. It's our absolute pleasure. We are longtime big fans of yours. It's only made extra special since we're also in Ohio here, where you are now in your hometown. You've returned many years ago. <laughs> That's right. 12 trips, actually, with the van, bring all my crap back. Uh, before we went on the air, I said I was a crap monster and <laughs> 12 truckloads uh, of bringing guitars and amplifiers and recording equipment. And wow. So obviously we wanted to talk to you about music and about making it big, you know, starting in one area and, and making it big. But to, as a kid, what's the earliest recollections you have of music here? What's the type of music in, in your home maybe you heard or? Well, um, I was born in 49. So yep. I have my milestones. I did get to see Elvis on TV as my parents tut-tutted. <laughs> as soon as the hips started shaking. And what is that? Um, I was uh, hooked at an early age. I am the proverbial kid who had listen to WDOK or whatever, the rock stations, um, and um, get, get <laughs> from my parents for listening to this stuff. Mm. But, um, you know, it really got me in the late 50s and early 60s, like everybody else. Um, uh, house was very musical, though. My mom was a piano teacher and um, uh, musicals, musicals, musicals. Um, I grew up in the golden age of musicals and sure. You know, I can still do, you know, um, oh, gee, uh, uh, the telephone hour from Bye Bye Birdie, note for mm -hmm. note. And, um, you know, the pajama game was one of my favorites because um, right. it was slightly smutty. <laughs> uh, actually, you know, it started out with um, folk guitar, I guess it's called, you know, cowboy chords, uh, E minor, D minor. And then, of course, Beatles, but my parents liked the Beatles. What really ruined my life was seeing the Who on Shindig. <laughs> so I can I can blame the Who completely um, <laughs> and entirely for for moving uh, for ruining my it's life. I think it's interesting you talk about how many you know your house is very musical. A lot of musicals, uh, you know, so much of your your music. You're thinking about Tin Huey, thinking about the waitresses is narrative. You know, you've got a there's a tale being yeah. told. I would have it's guessed it was from the folk singers of the era, but goes back even further, it seems, maybe. I, I, I have to say bullseye. The idea of story song, the idea of character song, the idea of pushing a plot point, even if there's no grand plot, an individual plot between, you know, first, first, and fade out. Something's got to move. Something's got to happen. You know, it's not my feelings. You know, I love <laughs> You know, that's for somebody else. Uh, good observation, uh, spot on. I do like to tell stories or or freeze a moment and describe it. I actually wrote a song called Spin for the Waitresses, which is about exactly that, being frozen in the middle of something and observing. And 
that's what the lyrics were made out of. And I kind of wrote about how I was writing at the time. Mm. That, that kind of reminds me of uh, the song No Guilt. Yeah, perfect example. Yeah. There was a character, a female, who is uh, recovering from a, a relationship that is over. And she's finding herself and discovering uh, who she is and just doing small, very kind of day-to-day things. And, uh, and ending in a chorus, it's like, wow, I guess... I'm going to be okay. And she doesn't, she only half believes it, which I, like I, I kind of thought was kind of interesting. So many authors today get scrutinized if they're writing for other races or other genders. I'm talking about, I'm thinking about novelists, a friend of mine who's a writer, you know, who's had these sort of challenges. Was it an issue or did someone question the fact that how is this man writing for a woman, a woman back in the day? I, I find that really surprising because you know, Holland Dozier Holland writing for the Supremes right. and every other female act. Uh, any playwright that has a female character, you know, is is Tennessee Williams like right. <laughs> you can write these 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 bizarre, interesting female characters. I, I I I found it bizarre that people and they did take take issue with it. I, I was trying to continue the no guilt song because it was the flip side of boys like and i thought boys like okay i have i have i have this kind of you know sexy tease song and um uh that's only one little aspect of the women that i knew i i need to balance it i need to balance it with other parts of a of a female persona and that became the way to go because with patty and her ability as an actress she began to kind of inhabit this character that was easily 50 percent her but just as a person sure uh, uh, you know as a as a comedian as a uh, she's funny as hell she was funny as hell and and i thought okay I, I, i've got to keep fleshing out my perception or my experiences with women and then channel it through her literally asking her would women really think like this not to put you on the spot <laughs> right. Patty, is like you're the ex- expert of the spokesperson for <laughs> all of womankind there, there was a lot of dialogue in terms of you know is this true and i would ask other uh, female friends too but i always thought that was kind of weird that someone would go you're writing songs for a woman what you what do you know yeah. and, and as a man in my bad days i would say well you got to know your enemy <laughs> <laughs> and on my good days i would say well you know you want me to be, you want me slash us to be enlightened that i need to know what's going on um i never was a, a macho kind of guy and this is the 80s and this is where but second wave feminism yeah. going on and uh, I should pay attention to it in my civilian life, not just as a writer yeah. or a pop writer. You know, this is what's going on, the empowerment of women and trying to have it all and the difficulties that that creates in a woman's life. I, I was going to guess that it probably, it might've been the because of the second wave of feminism that to, Folks were worried that maybe a man is, you know, not that you're not a feminist, but that your man is trying to, man, as they say now, mansplain. And maybe mansplain a, to a woman her own, you know, experience. Well, like, well you know, uh, I guess, you know, guilty as charged to some degree. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. But that was the situation 
I slash we found ourselves in, and it had an appeal. Remember, there were a lot of aspects to this band that I had to try and balance. Patty was no belter, all right? Yeah. A strict mm-hmm. melody, you know, some soaring kind of thing ain't going to happen. So I had to write a lyrics that were within a pretty tight a melodic range, but also make sure that whatever she was saying better be damn well interesting and or poetic and or resonate that she has to be speaking truth of, right. of, yeah. of some kind. I think you guys did an absolute beautiful job of taking her voice and giving her what the, you know, what she said. Like for me, I think she's got one of the, the top 10 voices of the eighties as far as females go. Right. I, I, she sounds like Cleveland, Akron area to me. That's that's what I like about her. She was every girl. Yeah, she was. Uh, she was as a person every girl, but also ex- exactly right. That's that was kind of the character. She was a day to day woman, not necessarily in a power in eighties power suit, you know, with with big shoulders yeah. <laughs> and and kicking ass at an advertising agency. No, if. Bruce Springsteen, you know, had his uh, wicked class male guy. I think Patty was, and this could be, you know, giving more credit to where, where credit was due, <laughs> but I could, that was my intent was to say, okay, uh, uh, working to lower middle class uh, females and, yeah, yeah. And, and what is going on, you know, do I, want to do I still want a kid do I yeah. do, do I want a job you know those were those were real conflicts mm-hmm. in, in the ether at the moment and I thought that was really rich and right to write about and I thought her delivery and her wisecracking gum chewing cigarette dangling persona mm-hmm. was her and she was real good so the, the fact that you Teamed up with her, and I know the story, if it's true, right, that you, you called yeah. out in a bar, who wants to sing on this song? Exactly. It seems like kismet now, or karma, that you would uh, connect. I mean, if because her voice, like Ray's saying, is iconic, and for me, uh, certainly the, the time of the early 80s, it's it defines that sound, that sort of ethereal, a little disaffected, uh, that was, you know, part of, a, you know, there's a, a group of folks coming up that has had a similar kind of thing in different ways, but... How lucky. I mean, it seems unbelievable to think that, you know, someone else could have stood up. That's right. Um, well, I I did know her before. I was in a band called 156075, which is sure. uh, also called <laughs> the, number, yeah. number, the Numbers Band. Yeah. I, play, uh, I was playing bass and she was a kind of a girl about, to, we're talking about Kent, Ohio at this time, not Akron, but Kent was where the gigs were. Akron didn't have really any rock clubs until the 80s kind of really took off i'm talking middle to late 70s and that's when i met her and she was dating the drummer for uh the numbers band yeah it was it was pretty kismet wasn't it (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) so speaking of the numbers band i mean you know for folks that don't know i mean certainly in the area it's it's a well-respected well-known uh band it's it's got some really interesting connections to bands that came out of this area, you know, you've got Jerry Casale was a bassist once you, you were a bassist at some point for the band, uh, the, the, uh, kidney brothers, uh, Terry Hind, uh, Chrissy yeah, Hind's brother, little sister, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. His little sisters you might've heard of. And when, you know, when Chrissy did the, um, kind of jazz record that she did recently, it was Terry who did both coaching and, uh, the arrangement of the numbers band or a national treasure that we happen to have just locally. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it is, uh, uh, they are amazing. They're phenomenal. And they're in their 51st year. They'd still be playing yeah. if it weren't for COVID. It is one of the great pleasures of my life to be friends with Robert Kidney, the leader and writer of the band, and to be able to sit in on bass every once in a while. Again, as you're saying, such a phenomenal band. So many talented musicians have been a part of it. What is your experience at that point that you're you're able to be at that level to play bass? Were you at what point had you started playing uh, music in your life? And oh, I, w- I was in high school bands. I was a drummer, yeah. and yeah. after folk guitar uh, and seeing those damn who on uh, <laughs> I wanna play, I'm going to play drums, you know, and I got a drum kit and I played all through high school and I was in one of the only integrated bands. I went to Orange High School, which is East Eastern suburb. We had a black lead singer and leader and that was very rare. And our high school was out of the suburbs. So we had people who were very wealthy in, in one area. And then we had people who moved out from the immigrant centers in Cleveland, a lot of second, third generation people, uh, Polish, Hungarian, and Italian. And then we had kind of Section A poor kids, and there was one little uh, town that had a black population. Well, the white rich kids band were called the Rubber Kind, and they had very, very, you know, shiny new uh, uh, Vox amplifiers, and they were very cool. They played British, uh, British invasion stuff, and. We were the we were the greaser band. We were the hot rod band. <laughs> Played Link Ray, you know, Link Ray and James Brown. Mm. You know, we we did R and B. We were we played, you know. When one of the bikers, you know, died, we played the wake. <laughs> <laughs> because we had a black singer, I got to experience a, a lot of things that a white suburban kid would not. We would play downtown if you. Yeah. And that was really something. So yeah, that that started that. And then I went to Kent for school. I couldn't bring my drums. And I got yeah. a guitar. And uh, eventually I got a bass. And you know, it was the guitar age, right? So it's it, it makes sense now as you describe, you know, we learned about your music that you listened to when you were a kid. Yeah. Also the the music that you're talking about, even as you got to the numbers in this eclectic band and being exposed to things yes. that you wouldn't otherwise been exposed. It makes sense to me now how the numbers band sound, but also ultimately how Tin Huey sounds, where it seems like it's got DNA from so many different, you know, I don't want to say genres because that might be too... Bullseye, bullseye. Here's the thing about Akron Kent bands. In New York City, if you wanted to put a rockabilly band, you put an ad the Village Voice, you know, a rockabilly band forming, must have look, must have period instruments, uh, ready to travel, da-da-da-da. You get five, you'll get 500 hits. You know, there was one rockabilly guy in Akron. There was one uh, 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 blues kid. Well, there are a few more, but for this example, there was one yeah. British invasion person. There was one somebody listening to the Velvet Underground. Again, a few more, but for yeah. this example, well, if they, if any of them wanted to be in the band, they had to play with someone else who was not really into. Hmm. They were. And wow. out of that comes, well, you, you have to come up with something that either incorporates it or accommodates what their interest is. And out of that comes something unique. Tin Huey couldn't be more diversified. The number spent couldn't be any more diversified. You had rock players, you had jazz players, you had blues players, you had Jerry Casale in a monkey, you know, in a monkey mask. 
You know, <laughs> I, I was an R and B funk kid. I um, I'd always played in R and B bands um, with you know mainly guitar, but the whole world wanted to be Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton. I wanted to be Cornell Dupree. I I, I wanted to be uh, Jamie Robbie Robertson playing the perfect part at the right time. Mm. You know, yeah, there's a time to solo, but mm, not for three hours. You know, it, uh, <laughs> that was the stuff I, I wanted that, not necessarily clean sound, but, you know, the sweet part, the cool thing, yeah. you know, not just endlessly blowing on a blues pentatonic scale, yeah. you know, with the stack of Marshalls. No, thank you. I, I wanted to be taste tasty and, um, <laughs> I think out of that comes the, uh, that influence the songwriting because I, I did try and come up with my own parts, my little tasty licks, you know, and then arrange it, uh, break that up and pass that out to other members of the band. So like, you know, and um, the arrangements come very organically. And I, I tried to do that um, with the waitresses, but before that, that's also how, Tin Huey operated because sure. Tin Huey was as as eclectic as as it can be. You had a jazz drummer, you had people who were really in love with kraut rock and all the Canterbury music, all uh, soft machine, anything by Robert Wyatt. Right. Uh, a lot of a lot of European avant garde influence, and I was this guy who you know let's just play Soul Man and I'll be happy. <laughs> you know, uh, again Tin Huey. People from different backgrounds get together, um, and out of that uh, comes um, something uh, unique. Yeah, it, when you talked about when you made that comment about um, you know not knowing not to play a solo for three hours, I realized something now about your music because there's something about your arrangements. I mean, they're not some of the you know time signatures are they're not cut. It's not always cut time. You're playing with dissonance and assonance. You know some of the things. But there's something practical about it in a sense that a commercial recording would be. Not that your goal was to be commercial or you know get these songs in the top 40, but there is something, a balance there. Yeah, that's um, practical. Thank you. Thank you. That's ace listing because, yeah, the arrangements and the puzzle is my personal pleasure. I had no reason to continue to write songs after the band broke up other than it is fun. It mm -hmm. is. It is. And the fun part is to arrange and oh, there's a little hole here for a little yep. something, <laughs> and, you know, and and it can be annoying because it doesn't follow regular song patterns or beats or whatever. Um, and waitresses, you're absolutely right. You know, a bar of three, a uh, uh, bar of two, you know, e even in one of the more simpler songs, Christmas Wrapping, I have the pleasure of being asked to play every year with a local band or two. And there's a break in the song. We have to play it on time. Da 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 da, da 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 da, da 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 da. Well, that's not how it went. Da 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 da. And it ends. It's it slips the sixteenth note every bar, but it rhymes up on the one. Oh. Yeah. How clever. <laughs> Andy Partridge, of all people, wrote a little letter and I got to talk with him mm. a little bit. And he, 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 he pointed that out. He said, I know what you did there. <laughs> I know, Mr. Buckler. I know. <laughs> I know what you did. Did you, you know, I guess nowhere in our conversation is how you've, you learned to do all these things. Is it just, are you, take, are you able to take in all these things in like a computer almost just spit out something it, it, not to, not that it's uh you know 
scientific in that sense. I'm sure it's comes well, from a place of divine inspiration, but well, you know, that one, that's the benefit of, 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 of an education being in the numbers band of goddamn education, mm. you know, <laughs> yeah. listening to little feet, listening to the song, cold, cold, cold. And when it comes to the instrumental break, tell me where the one is, <laughs> you won't be able to hear, the one. you know, unless you're really sharp. <laughs> You won't know where the one is. It turns around. The little feet being the perfect example, or Beefheart mm. being the perfect example of. It makes sense, but it's it's really strange. And and little feet especially, they almost you know their accents that you know almost every uh, subbeat is covered somewhere, and mm. um, with a, usually an accent that's off time. And in the middle of cold, 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 they do this turnaround and the time flips backwards and probably not intentional, but there's a part where I swear they get lost mm. or, or <laughs> they, lose, they lose the one, but it's so wonderful. You just keep going. How did I, I don't know. I just, you pick up on it. You pick up on it in avant-garde uh, music. You pick up on it in, in, in orchestral yeah. stuff. You pick up on it and in, in, in jazz kind of, kind of, um, you know, uh, I, I have a huge hole that I need to work on. I have a lot of uh, friends, North Jersey popsters. All right. Amazing, amazing people. They are like the masters of the Brian Wilson type chord progressions. Mm. They're incredible, but I would really like to master or just know more about what is, what is going on in these chord progressions. You know, how did you get yeah. from this key to this key? So if you think I know what I'm doing, that's very flattering. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I guess I picked up on enough stuff and I'm uneducated enough to take more risk or try and find something. Um, but it, it, isn't that the, the beauty of being in music? Like you started young and you just always, there's something more you want to do with it. Isn't that, you're right. Isn't that something, Ray? Uh, That's crazy. Yeah. I, I have something that grabs me and goes, man, you know, dissect it, but also like, yeah. you know, not lose the hole, you know, and <laughs> right. I find it in great older records, the great old rock and roll records. How the hell did they come up with quarter to three, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, by Gary U.S. Bonds? If you listen to that and the, the way the rhythm goes and the horn and the tone of the horn, you know, and the double track vocals, and it all sounds like mud. <laughs> you know, it's this muddy reverb thing and it's brilliant. It's just brilliant. Or, XTC, I love XTC because sure. you listen to the first, it just hits you. And then, and then, and then, and you would have to go on to web tutorials about this. You know, somebody was going to deconstruct this song and you, <laughs> and, and you go, man, it's so brilliant how they, they this part fit with this part and mm. the little thing over here. And so, yeah, the education never stops. Thankfully. You mentioned yeah. XTC. One of the things I was thinking about is sort of the English influence of early 80s music and thinking about even some Devo, but and maybe Tin Huey, certainly the waitresses, the uh, syncopated guitars of like English ska bands, like yeah. uh, the Selector or something like that. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm a white boy, dumbass white boy from, uh, <laughs> you know, from Ohio. I still smell like manure. Manure <laughs> <laughs> on my shoes. And I, I go to New York and... And um, I immediately fall in with expat Midwesterners. And then along comes Madness gets booked into Hurrah. And they are having such a great time. And, what, you know, what is this? A jump, 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 jump. And a million miles an hour, right? <laughs> Bang, right down to Bleaker Bob's. And go, okay, okay, Scott, uh, give me a couple compilation 
records. And I got the, the famous, uh, uh, the Scatolites and Max Romeo. Oh, I'm trying to think of what it is. I know what you're talking about, too. The second I found out what Scott was, I bought the same thing. I can't yeah. think of what it is right now. Wow. Oh, my God. Because reggae, oh, yeah, we all know Bob, Bob Marley was like, okay, but yeah. well, this yeah. is before that. And it's, it's crazy fun. And I could be really dark, and the writing could be dark. But with a ska beat, it's yep. <laughs> automatically happy fun. Uh, it's my car. Ska. Yeah. Ska. Got some ska in there. As ska as it can be because it was a uh, Yeah. It also, though, reminds me of Ramones, Blitzkrieg Bop a little bit. Uh, I'm flattered. Thank you. I, I was not thinking about it at the time. Yeah, um, I was I was thinking Scott. I was thinking party thing, goofy. But I think subconsciously you had a little bit of Ramones going on there, which Absolutely fantastic. I think that's my favorite song on that album. Thank you very much. You mentioned uh, Bleaker Bob. So at some point you leave Ohio um, and thinking about, you know, sort of our topic of, of this episode, thinking about, uh, you know, bands that made it big and certainly from Ohio. Yeah. When, when do you know when to move on, I guess, or, or, or when it's time to, to, to leave? Well, Ken Huey had one glorious flop on Warner Brothers and they gave us money to go away. <laughs> it's wonderful. Because <laughs> you had a two-album deal, and they said, "Don't yeah, do the second album." album. <laughs> but it was like you know, and I'm. This is serious. Um, okay, okay, you know, ring, ring, ring. Uh, it's Karen Bird, you know, or or the business manager. Well, you know, we don't want to make a second record. Your contract says two records firm. We we would like to give you ten thousand dollars. Oh no 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 no! We're from Ohio. We're Midwestern. Work ethic. You know, contract's a contract. We're ready. To Go, you know, we're we're recording <laughs> songs and okay. Um, uh, well, we'll we'll give you a twenty twenty thousand. Uh, no, you know, hey, you know, we got new demos you should hear on our turn back grade, and you know, the, you know, and uh, okay, we'll give you thirty five. Okay, fine, thanks. <laughs> so, um, we took that. Um, the band pretty much relocated to the New York larger area. Ralph went to Brooklyn. I went to Manhattan. The other guys went to uh, Woodstock, Bearsville area. And I, I left in October 79 because Tin Huey had one market where we did really, really well. And that was New York. Hmm. And New York was jumping, you know, at that time, you know, 78, 79. It was wonderful. And uh, there was so much going for it. And I I wanted to be a songwriter. I didn't want to be in a band anymore. Bands kept blowing up on me so, and breaking my heart. But I had an acetate for I Know What Boys Like. And I ran it around and, and I was able to get a, um, a little record deal with Ant Antilles. And then they, for 45, and they said, well, we need a B-side. Where's your band? <laughs> and I <laughs> need a band again. True, it's true. I fibbed and I said, band's back in Ohio, aka Patty was back in Ohio. And <laughs> she was in and out of school. She would uh, uh, go to school, quit for a quarter. Kent was on the quarter system. Go work for a quarter, be away to go someplace that she wanted, like Las Vegas or Galveston, Texas, whatever. Work as a waitress, come back, go to school for another quarter. She was in between you know, uh, school and uh, was free. Is it come to New York? You know, we're going to do a B-side. And I had a friend who had a, a, a spare room in her apartment and we did the uh, the B-side and uh, they released it and it did well. And then our uh, singles contract got got sold over to ZE. We got traded like like ball players, I think. And, you know, Patty's there. I said, 
hey, look, you know, they want us to make an album, which means we need a real band band. Are you, are you up? Do you want to do this? And she said, yeah. So we put it together and, and, um, I know it took a little while for uh, boys like to break. It, it never broke. Well, <laughs> it never what are you talking about? You know, I love that For video. us, it did, yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, that was the greatest blessing. That is the best possible scenario I could have ever had, Will. Yeah. Because most songs go like this. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. What? <laughs> well, this thing went bang and then stayed there. Just simmered. And it stayed there. And it's, and it, and it, you know, at various charts, I get 41 or something. Yeah, I was going to say, that that hit about 40? Yeah. yeah. Well, no, no, 40 would have, I have a story about why it didn't get the 40, but no. Uh, no. Well, you, well, if you buy, you have to buy your way into the top. Oh, uh, yeah. Hmm. And, and there was a meeting where, where you know, the record company was saying, well, or, or are we going to spend the extra $50,000, $100,000 on promotion? Mm. To- <laughs> uh, oh, you're talking payola. Did I use that word, sir? <laughs> I can use that word because it's okay well, let, for me to use well, it. Let's say interest enhancement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the best possible thing was bang. And it mm. stayed there, which means we could go out on the road. It was still being played. We could hit every college town. It really that, you know, uh, it really didn't do, you know, the raining uh, record for, it wasn't triple a it wasn't classic rock it was it was college radio pretty much and and smaller fm stations that kept spinning it and thank god because it came out in april sorry i mean my chronology right 80 okay you know kept going uh then we got signed over to ze and uh we recorded our album but he lost his distribution uh, so it sat on the shelves, but we could keep going out in the summer and play and find an audience. And then in 81, uh, we did the Christmas song and uh, finally he got a deal, a distribution deal. And our record was going to be released in February of 82. Uh, we did the Christmas song and then come Christmas holidays, the Christmas song broke. It did very, very well. And, th- and then our album came out. But oh, no, man. Boys Luck was never a hit, but it seemed to personify 80-ness, early oh, yeah. 80-ness, and that's as good as it gets. I think before I'd seen the music video, I think I had first heard it in The Last American Virgin, a movie which <laughs> had an impact on me as a young person. Oh, really? I, I thought you were going to say Lost to History. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. We, and we actually had uh, Diane Franklin on, and we talked to her, her about this, that the film oh, really? is such a mix of you know, sex romp and, uh, I don't know, a cautionary tale, you know, for young people. Cautionary teenage tale, cautionary teenage new wave tale. Yes. So I was like there for the romp and terrified of the, you know, consequences, but that song and, and, and Patty's character in it, it was sort of for me in my mind is part of my subconscious where I remember early in the eighties was super intimidated of women, you know, just thought, how am I going to get, like, you know, they're in control, they're, in, they're empowered, you know, rightfully so. And okay. as a young person, how do I, I don't know how to approach these women. They're just, you know. They were in power on a sexual, emotional um, level, but not economically and not, mm, yeah. not in the society, which they, which they were working on, right? right? But guys knew who held the reins. And, you know, that, that, that is actually a kind of, in hindsight, 
that's an incel song, you know? Isn't it? That's yeah, a blue story. Yeah. And, and, and the fact that it kind of became an empowering feminist anthem is surprising. Well, I guess since it's sung from the woman's perspective, then it, it doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> well, it was also just meant to be funny and a joke. Yeah. But, yeah. but, you know, I have, there are many clips on YouTube of uh, sophomore women in a drunken state at a party singing I know what like. and, and they're having a grand old time about it. They don't worry about uh, any any of the potential political yeah. uh, identity uh, uh, nope. minefields. What is it? it Maybe you hit upon this already. I was going to say, what is it about this area of Ohio that we've got so many folks that have emerged and maybe even during that one particular time, especially, but no, you've still got folks. You've got the Black Keys very recently, sort yeah, of. Black Keys and a whole bunch of other. I, yeah, a bunch of I, I, I just discovered that there is a house concert circuit here in town that is internationally. Well, this is like below my radar, you know. People my age group go to Jilly's. That's it, hmm. you know. And and we see our old our friends playing in their revived bands. There, there is a house concert but all the houses have names and all of this and people who who are playing in that scene locally will go play festivals in europe you know mm-hmm. it, you know it's below the radar but only in my demographic you know and mm-hmm. it's it's that's sensational why i don't think this could be understated there is a work ethic here that is ferocious and there's a, a, a great book by my friend Dave Giffels called The Hard Way on Purpose, you know, and he's, he's writing about Accra and, and what's it like to be here. And you have an incredible housing stock that you can get these amazing arts and crafts houses from the 20s for something, you know, affordable. Yeah. The weather sucks. Yes. <laughs> but, but uh, there's, you know, there's a lot. There's a lot going on. Or, you know, a lot is the wrong word. There's enough. There's enough going on that's stimulating and you have room and uh, you have physical room and psychological room to make things. Well, I don't know that statistically you've had as many successes and uh, uh, as far as the music scene come out than in, in, uh, in this area. And we are super grateful that you, uh, along with Tin Healing and, and the waitresses in particular, were part of it because you, again, you defined a sound for us and our youths. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. I've been a fan of his music for a long time now. Excellent guy, great music. Uh, I think we learned a lot about maybe what makes uh, Northeast Ohio sort of a incubator for, you know, great musical talent. But I don't know if we proved anything about the 1980s. <laughs> oh, we have proven. Oh, geez. You were paying attention. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. Okay. That Northeast Ohio yeah. is the home Hmm. For everything awesome that came out of the eighties, sure. Because you could, you could, hey, you can trace that trail back to Ohio one way or another. Yeah, you can say six degrees of Kevin Bacon. I say six degrees of Ohio. <laughs> we got to get one of those yarn charts going, so we look completely <laughs> cr- crazy supporting this thesis. All right, hey, we will talk to you next time on the Eighties. See ya. See ya.